policy has been used to help achieve major public health advances, including in tobacco control, maternal and child health, and injury prevention. Although the policy process is slow moving, a clear understanding of its constraints could help leaders weigh trade-offs when taking policy action and develop credible evaluation and communication strategies. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Colleen Barry, Dean of the Cornell University Brooks School of Public Policy. As part of the journal series on the fundamentals of public health, Dr. Barry has co-authored a perspective article about using policy tools to improve population health. Dr. Barry, to begin, why is it important for physicians to understand the policymaking process and how policies affect health? So I think it's important for physicians and the public to understand how policy can serve as a tool for improving population health. And in this paper, we try to answer that question. And of course, we know that there are lots of ways policy can make a difference. But in a period like this one that we're living in, when there's such extreme political polarization and a declining trust in government, in the general public, but also within important subgroups like the physician community, I do think we start to question whether policy can be a force for good in people's lives. And I think our message with this piece is that it absolutely can. But for policy to make a difference, there are important hurdles to overcome. So my co-author, Brendan Saloner, and I walk through some steps with the piece that we view as essential to using policy to produce meaningful gains in health. And as we'll talk about in a minute, we illustrate these steps using the case of the ongoing and serious drug crisis in the U.S., but many different societal problems could fit into this framework for how the public and the physician community can think about the role of policy. So let's look at those steps. The first that you talk about in your article is problem definition. So why does it matter how a problem is framed and how has this specific example, the opioid epidemic, been framed in various arenas? How we define a societal problem really matters for which solutions are viewed as appropriate for solving the problem by the public. For example, in this case, framing the opiate crisis as a criminal justice problem implies a law enforcement response and things like more stringent sentencing laws for drug possession while framing the crisis as a health problem implies a medical or a health system response, such as improving access to evidence-based treatment. So the framing becomes quite important in the kinds of solutions that come to our mind as appropriate. There are other challenges here too. We as experts tend to rely really heavily on numbers to illustrate the toll of societal problems. But important research suggests that numbers alone may have a counterintuitive effect on people's willingness to act. That is, as the numerical toll of a crisis increases, public empathy and willingness to help, unfortunately, tends to decrease. And we have certainly seen this painfully over the course of the COVID pandemic. And in the piece, we talk about some classic work by Paul Slovic that highlights this paradox that society often fails to respond to a large-scale humanitarian crisis while highly valuing a single life. But since this piece and since our discussion is about public health, I want to highlight that there's really a rub here that storytelling to humanize often backfires for public health. A child refugee may elicit empathy from the public, but narrative depictions of people who are obese, unemployed, 
incarcerated or who use drugs or sell sex may not. So narrative allows us to make an emotional connection with a problem, but it also elicits feelings of blame and responsibility, and as a result can lead to support for punitive policies rather than public health-oriented policies. And in this example that we're talking about today with the opiate epidemic, things like incarcerating a mother who's seeking drug treatment, for example. In fact, the next step that you talk about in your article is capturing and sustaining the attention of the public and policymakers. So how does one go about doing that? For problems that we think are important in society and we want to use policy to help solve, it's important to think about how we elevate and sustain attention to the problem. So here, I always think about the classic work by Anthony Downs. Downs describes our common failure to recognize dire conditions that stem from major societal problems, such as racism or poverty. So a problem may have existed for a very long time with minimal or no attention to it from broader society. And then what we see often is the cycle where, for various reasons, through the media, it suddenly jumps into the public eye with some urgency around solving it. However, as time goes on, it fades from public view. And here's the critical part. It's often with the underlying conditions unresolved. And with the drug crisis, we've seen multiple cycles of this in the U.S. So we have a longstanding, largely invisible heroin crisis in poor urban communities of color suddenly gain prominence and, importantly, resources when white suburban middle-class communities start being affected. And even more recently, we've seen concentrated attention to the opioid crisis give way to an all-consuming focus on the COVID pandemic, even as we see overdose deaths climbing rapidly. When attention shifts, it's important to note that it's not just because a new problem swamps public attention to the old problem. Often, and we see this with the the opioid crisis, it's also because an initial burst of optimism that a societal problem can be solved meets with the reality of political interests with incentives to keep things as they are and what are often pretty substantial financial costs of pushing through real change. So the lesson here in terms of making a problem salient to the public and acting when it becomes salient is to take the window of opportunity when it comes to enact policy, because attention to an issue surely will fade over time and more quickly, typically, than you think it will. How should policymakers balance their options, the the options that might produce the greatest total health benefit against those that focus on vulnerable populations, those that promote equity? How do you find that balance? That's a great question. Often there are multiple policy pathways to trying to solve a societal problem. And you're absolutely right that trade-offs arise because policies rarely benefit all groups uniformly. When we face trade-offs, we often select the option that we think will produce the greatest health benefit. And in doing so, at times we overlook the equity implications of policy choices, including, importantly, who is most vulnerable and who is in most immediate danger. So should we, as you point to, prioritize policies targeting people at highest risk for overdose, or should we prioritize prevention programs that target all young people? Should we focus on policies to improve prescribing generally or direct resources toward intensive outreach to overdose survivors, for example? And of course, we want to do all of these things, but rarely is that an option. 
In my view, often the most powerful policy tools are those with the strongest evidence base that can increase equity while efficiently targeting resources to people who are in the greatest need. And in the context of the opioid crisis, I often think about things like harm reduction policies like naloxone distribution as some of our best tools for achieving what are often these competing goals. So the next step you talk about in your article is actually enacting the chosen policies. What are the various forms that policy enactment can take when it comes to public health solutions? Obviously, the best policy tools are those that can achieve the greatest gains in population health, and that means implementing policies at scale. And here in public health, often we orient toward more paternalistic mandate-oriented approaches, and at times that is appropriate. But we really do have other tools to take policies to scale, including using insights from behavioral economics. In drug policy, a nudge approach might, for example, include offering buprenorphine induction in emergency departments after non-fatal overdoses or making mobile methadone available outside jails and prisons to facilitate rapid access to treatment on release when we know there's the highest overdose risk. And so I think whatever the policy option we go with, it's important to have a plan in place to take that policy to scale in a meaningful way. And then the final step involves using rigorous evaluation to confirm that the policies are actually leading to the health improvements that were expected and to monitor for unintended consequences. How often are evaluations done properly? So not often enough, absolutely. The ability to use rigorous evaluation to confirm that policies are leading to expected benefits and, as you say, to monitoring for unintended consequences is critical. And the truth is we have great methods for policy evaluation that work in real-world settings and often are conceived through partnerships. So partnerships between researchers like me and public agencies can really make a difference. And I think that we have an opportunity to do even more work to incentivize researchers to be part of partnerships with community members and agencies and to lower the barriers for public agencies to work with researchers to put evaluation plans in place from the very beginning following enactment through implementation through the period of rollout. And finally, how should physicians and public health professionals stay encouraged and engaged in policymaking given these barriers that you've described? Well, I think the bottom line here in what we've written in this piece is that strong evidence-based policy is not enough, especially given the reality of a slow-moving political process, stigma around many different public health issues, not just this drug policy issue, obvious resource constraints, and a public wary of large government programs, a focus on these steps can help us make sure that the actions we take make a difference and that when we act, and this is really important, that we effectively communicate those policy victories to the public to build the case that societal problems are solvable. This is important when we think about the general public being our audience and very important when we think about the medical community being our audience and the power the medical community has to enact policy that can save lives. Thank you, Dr. Barry.